Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our producer, Stephen Schrader. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Oh, Natalie, it's it's going. It's going for a Thursday afternoon. You know, we, we talked about this at the production meeting yesterday. I really miss the days where the Supreme Court released opinions, but did so on like a Monday morning, you know, just like really <sighs> got an invigorating start to the week. Now they've decided to do it on Thursday mornings, the day that we record our podcast, so you and I spend the day running around crazy, trying to get all this (laughs) sorted out, but um, at least we got opinions, so what can we really complain about? That's true. I I, I would like to have a word with someone at the Supreme Court, you know, just because this this is not helpful for our production schedule, (laughs) and I wouldn't mind Monday and Wednesday opinions again, but you're right. I'm not going to complain too much because I, for one, am very happy that they released six more opinions this week. Yes, they they cut into, I believe um, we had 39, now we're down to 33, and we had a couple of big ones, a couple of surprises that wasn't exactly expecting to see when I hit the refresh button on the website this morning. But uh, yeah, I can kick us off with the first one that I think that was a bit of a shocker. That's right. The big Google case, uh, also known as the Section 230 case, because it dealt with the immunity of social media providers. Uh, And for those of you who didn't catch it, we actually had a special episode just a few weeks back about this case in Section 230. So I highly recommend you kind of check that out because it's really interesting kind of backstory to all this. Um, but yeah, the, the decision was surprising, to say the least. Yeah, we. this was all the talk back in February when it was argued. There was actually two pretty high-profile cases that were addressing terrorism-related claims and the liability of social media companies like Twitter, Facebook, and Google for terrorist attacks. They were argued a day apart uh, back in February. And in one of the cases, and this one was still pretty big, but not maybe quite as big as Google, this one was Twitter v. Tamna. And in this case, relatives of a Jordanian national who was killed in a 2017 terrorist attack in Istanbul, they claimed that Twitter and other social media companies violated the Anti-Terrorism Act by aiding and abetting ISIS through content on their platforms. And then in the second case, this was somewhat related, this is Google v. Gonzalez, This was the real blockbuster of the two because it brought in this question of the shield of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives tech companies broad immunity for content that appears on their sites. That was at issue in the Google v. Gonzalez case. There wasn't a dissimilar set of facts in this case. This was parents of a 23-year-old American student who was killed in a 2015 terrorist attack in Paris. Uh, The parents sued Google, alleging that YouTube's algorithm actively promoted ISIS propaganda that led to the attack. But this was the big one because it brought in that question about Section 230 immunity, which some of the justices have been open to scaling back. And the idea of scaling back Section 230 led to some questions like, will the Supreme Court break the internet? Um, So, as you mentioned, we did a whole special episode on this, and Natalie, I'm here to say that uh, both of these decisions came down today. The Supreme Court did not break the internet, and in fact, they did not even reach the Section 230 question, so this really kind of fell a bit flat, but important nonetheless, so let's talk about it. 
Yes, let's talk about it. Um, so, Stephen, you mentioned before, obviously, that the Google case was the one that had like the most spotlight on it. We were all watching it. And the Twitter case was really important, too, but probably didn't get as much public attention. Um, but here, uh, I, you know, we've been discussing, I know the Twitter case actually had the more important opinion here, <laughs> I, I, I think it's fair to say, right? Yeah, it was the unanimous ruling in the Twitter case that was the decision today. And again, it was a question of whether the victims of terrorism had made a plausible claim for relief under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the majority opinion, which was unanimous, and he said that the victims did not. So the opinion started off with a lengthy discussion about what constitutes aiding and abetting, and the justices decided that the companies did not knowingly provide substantial assistance to ISIS, so there was no claim. And, you know, with platforms like YouTube, which is owned by Google, Google certainly creates that and it sets up algorithms to display content that's relevant to what individual users have sought out. But it's kind of a passive relationship between the company and what appears on its platforms. Uh, Justice Thomas noted that most of these platforms don't even inspect the content first. So there just wasn't enough to support a claim of aiding and abetting. There wasn't enough of a nexus between YouTube or Twitter and some sort of active engagement between the companies and ISIS related to this terrorism event. Here's a quote from Justice Thomas, quote, To be sure, it might be that bad actors like ISIS are able to use platforms like defendants for illegal and sometimes terrible ends. But the same could be said of cell phones, emails, or the internet generally. Yet we generally do not think that internet or cell service providers incur culpability merely for providing their services to the public writ large. So what did this mean for the Section 230 case, Gonzalez v. Google? Well, once again, I mean, the Google case included a similar set of facts, the idea that YouTube's algorithm actively recommended ISIS content that resulted in a terrorist attack. And the Section 230 claim, the Gonzalez family basically argued that YouTube's recommendation fall outside of 230 protections, so these companies would be liable. But once again, the justices didn't even reach that claim today. They basically issued a three-page per curiam opinion in the Gonzalez case, and they said that, look, we didn't find any plausible claim for relief in the Twitter case, so we don't find a, a plausible claim for relief in this case. We're not going to address 230 today. And both of these cases are going to be remanded back to the Ninth Circuit. Now, can you refresh our memory? What happened at the Ninth Circuit previously and what might it mean for these cases now that they're back there? Right. I mean, that's it's a good refresher because, yeah, this all stemmed from the Ninth Circuit. So this is I'll try to explain this as clearly as possible. The Ninth Circuit had previously found that Section 230 did provide immunity to Google. So um, that's why the Gonzalez family had appealed to the Supreme Court. They had previously found that Tamna's claims against Twitter were plausible. And so that's how that case made it to the Supreme Court. So now on remand, basically, the Ninth Circuit can vacate its ruling in the Tamna v. Twitter case and say that there's no plausible claim for relief. And they've already decided the Google v. Gonzalez claims, um, basically, that Google is protected by 230. So, I mean, really, if they wanted to, this case could go away. I don't know if they'll do that. I don't know if they'll revisit the 230 claims. It was a split 
circuit decision on the 230 claims when they decided it uh, back in 2021. Uh, so we'll just have to wait to see what happens. And I mean, that's that's really kind of all I have on this one. You know, it was a big one that we were all watching. And it's interesting when a case like this kind of ends with not a lot of answers, but the internet survives, I guess, a, a, another day, and um, we're, we're just going to have to wait to see what, what the Ninth Circuit decides in this one. Sounds good. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, so Thursday actually was kind of a big IP day, too. There was like a lot of intellectual property opinions. One I really want to talk about is the Warhol v. Goldsmith opinion that came down. This was a highly watched copyright case. Uh, kind of going to your point about the internet surviving the day. Most of the justices here think the copyright law survived the day, although two, <laughs> two did not. Um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, basically, the, the affirming the Second Circuit, the justices said Warhol did not make fair use of some photos of the musical artist formerly known as Prince because Warhol's work shared the same commercial purpose as the original photo taken of Prince. This was a really interesting one. Um, you're right. We were paying close attention to it. What's this had a really interesting backstory though? What's the what happened in this one again? Yeah, so Lynn Goldsmith is a celebrity photographer, and many, many years back, she took a portrait of Prince, kind of a standard black and white where he kind of looks somber. And Warhol, for a later magazine article, kind of flattened that image, turned it orange, you know, did did his Warhol effect basically, which <laughs> did has the Warhol kind of, thing to it. Did the Warhol thing to it that kind of, you know, gives it a kind of silkscreen look to it. Now, in giving that silkscreen look to it, the Andy Warhol Foundation, you know, his estate is basically saying he changed the the meaning of the picture, uh, its message. Yeah, kind of kind of transformed it a little bit. It's not it's it's a similar picture, but a different different meaning there invokes it, different feelings. Exactly. Um, but the justice on Tuesday said that there wasn't a substantially different purpose between the photo taken by Goldsmith and Warhol's artwork that used that photo. I will say this was an interesting lineup. Justice Sotomayor wrote the majority opinion for this 7-2 decision. She was joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson. And then Justice Kagan wrote a dissent, and she was joined by the Chief Justice. That is an interesting um, breakdown there. Now, what what did the two groups say? What did the um, what did the majority say in this one? Yeah, so like as I mentioned, the Andy Warhol Foundation had been arguing that Warhol gave new meaning to this portrait, and a lower court had agreed with him. You know, saying that the Warhol treatment transformed Prince from kind of looking vulnerable to this larger than life figure. Um, but the justice said that's not enough, right, to overcome an existing four-part test for determining whether something is fair use. Now, specifically in this case, they were really looking at the first factor of this test, which is, you know, whether new art has, quote, a further purpose or different character. And here, Justice Sotomayor, writing for the majority, said, you know, this is a matter of degree, and the degree of difference must be weighed against other considerations like commercialism. So the fact that this was used for a commercial purpose to get money as opposed for a nonprofit purpose is something that's relevant when they're thinking about whether it meets this this first part of the test. Um, not dispositive, but relevant. And Justice Sotomayor goes on to say, you know, although new expression, meaning, or message may be relevant to whether copying use has a sufficiently distinct purpose or character, 
it's not without more dispositive for the first factor. So basically, both portraits of Prince are used in magazines to illustrate stories about Prince. They're both commercial in nature. This basically counsels against fair use here. And just as a side note, the other three factors in this test, the photographer had already met and the Andy Warhol Foundation did not contest like lower court findings that she had met this. So something like this, you know, a question of fair use, you have a piece of art and uh, another piece of art sort of copies it or mimics it in a way, isn't transformative. That's a big question here, but it's not the only factor. There are other ones that go into it, including its use or its purpose. And it seems like that wasn't really met today to overcome that that uh, argument that it that it was fair use. That's right. And actually, you know, Justice Sotomayor in the majority opinion kind of went into discussing Andy Warhol's kind of iconic Campbell soup artwork, you know, and in that case, you know, Campbell soup cans, Campbell soup labels, they're an advertisement. And he transformed the character of that image into something that's not an advertisement in his artwork and kind of more like, you know, t- talking about, you know, consumerism and whatnot. <laughs> not not to dismiss it. I, I just will say art history is not my, my strongest suit here. So I don't want to cross lines into discussing art history. Although this, these, this opinion and the dissent were very interesting um, kind of uh, discussions on art history and, and where it intersects with the law. I love it when the justices talk art history and explain to us what art means. So uh, that is my understanding as well, that the dissent went into a little bit of that. Um, Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts, what did they have to say? Justice Kagan, a uh, very strong word, said that today's decision leaves our first factor inquiry in shambles. Those were her exact words. Strong words. Um, And she went on to say, you know, the court decided not to weigh any of the transformation done in Warhol's work and only focus on the decision to sell it to a magazine. Quote, because the artist had such a commercial purpose, all the creativity in the world could not save him. That judgmental shift ill serves copyright's core purpose. And she goes on to say, you know, how copyright law was really meant to foster creativity to protect artists being able to, you know, build upon other artists. And there's a whole long uh, dissertation that she goes into in her dissent about how that that's happened over the centuries, artists kind of building on previous works. And then she really has concerns that this decision will will be a roadblock for future creativity and future artists. Now, we had mentioned that this was a very highly watched case because the court hasn't really grappled with copyright law in a major way for a while. Isn't that right? Yes, that's right. So a Law360 senior reporter for copyrights and trademark, Tiffany Hu, she noted that the last time the high court tackled this question was like back in 1994, you know, this question of whether a creative work constituted fair use under the federal copyright statute. Um, and and there, the justices held in 1994 in Campbell v. Acuf Rose Music, different Campbell, by the way, not anything to do with Campbell Soup, uh, that a work is transformative if it adds something new with a further purpose or different character. Again, what was kind of at issue here. So I think really uh, this, this builds on that that 1994 decision in many ways um, and really 
kind of solidifies what the justices mean by different character when they're talking about it and it helps kind of lay out a, a better framework, I think. Uh, I'm sure that will be disputed uh, by IP attorneys uh, and debated <laughs> by IP attorneys as, as you know, this kind of like settles in the dust. Um, I do want to note that there was also a concurrence by Justice Gorsuch that Justice Jackson joined. And it was really interesting because I, I said this kind of was like an art history uh, focused kind of opinion. Um, and, and Justice Gorsuch and Jackson were like, uh, judges are not meant to be art critics. And we're siding with the majority here because, uh, quote, happily, the law does not require judges to tangle with questions so far beyond our competence, unquote, which I thought was a, a really, um, a really great line there. Just, you know, yes, judges are not art critics. And I think asking them to to uh, really grapple sometimes with whether something is transformative might be difficult for, for some judges. Like there's a, a subjectivity there, right? Um, so I think to some to some degree, this decision lays out a more clean path for courts when they are trying to decide whether something meets that first factor in the test. Um, and as the courts, as the justice noted, like this is always a case by case basis for courts. Like no two scenarios are going to be the same. Uh, another, you know, similar Andy Warhol use of a Prince photo might have been different under like if some of the circumstances of its use were different. Well, that's very interesting. Natalie would definitely have to see how this kind of settles out at the lower courts and how they decide to to use the words of the justices to to make some of those decisions. Um, and this was a very big case, one, one that one of the blockbusters that we had kind of pegged for the term. So um, we got that one off of our plate. Unrelated to opinions that came out today, we actually did have a pretty big decision, an emergency decision that came out on Wednesday afternoon. So I can talk about that one for a minute. That's right. This one comes from your home state of, of Illinois, right, Stephen? My home state, where, where I'm currently located, Illinois, coming out with some some rules related to gun regulation. Um so, first of all, what they decided, the Supreme Court on Wednesday declined to block both a state and local law in Illinois that bars the sale of assault-style weapons. Uh, so, take away from this, the laws will remain in effect as the case proceeds to the Seventh Circuit. There are two laws at issue here. There's a city ordinance in Naperville, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, and that one bans a pretty broad category of assault-style weapons that includes the AR-15 rifle. That law was passed back in August. And then there's a similar state law that was passed in January of this year. Um, the National Association for Gun Rights, as well as a local gun store owner in Naperville, are suing over the laws. And all of this really comes on the heels of that big Supreme Court opinion last June in the case New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. From my home and state. <laughs> that's right. That was um yeah that was a that was a big blockbuster case from from last year. They really broadened um, the Second Amendment with that, and they decided that the Second Amendment does protect guns that are used for self defense. So back to the Illinois laws. In February, an Illinois federal judge upheld both the state and the local law, and she acknowledged the ruling in Bruin, but explained that assault-style rifles and high-capacity magazines at issue 
are the kind of particularly dangerous weapons that the government has historically regulated. So it fell outside the scope of Bruin. And the petitioners point to the fact that, okay, a rifle like the AR-15, that's owned by millions of people for lawful purposes, including self-defense. So you can't possibly say that you know, the government regulates this sort of, of, of weapon and this law just can't hold up under that. Um, for now, they do, though. The As is in typical fashion, when the Supreme Court issues an emergency order, uh, it was just a one sentence. They declined to block the, the state and city ordinance from going into effect. So this is going to proceed to the Seventh Circuit on an expedited schedule. And I mean, it is a it's a pretty interesting set of facts. Obviously, given that ruling last year, we know what the Supreme Court is kind of leaning towards. But looking at the historical record of what the Second Amendment allows regulation for and, you know, whether these are the type of weapons that are used for self-defense, I think is going to make for some pretty interesting arguments. So um, we're just going to have to see what the Seventh Circuit says on that. And um I mean, we could go on forever talking about all the opinions in the world, given how many we've got today. But um, I think that probably wraps us up, right? That does, Stephen. Thanks so much. And yeah, I'm looking forward to next week. Hopefully, we'll we'll get another uh, good batch. I just love running around like a crazy person on Thursday morning. So let's keep well, it up. Well, hopefully, they'll come back. You know, on a Monday or a Wednesday, or they'll they'll, they'll space them out. I don't think they will. I think we'll be I back here see... on Thursday. <laughs> I don't think I don't see anything on their calendar for like yeah. Monday stuff. I'm waiting for that yellow square to show up. Uh, it hasn't. So, um, but we'll we'll keep on it. We'll we'll keep breaking the news. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank our producers Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our reporters Jess Koshtangle and Tiffany Hu. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the High Court action, please go to law360.com/slash/the-term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening, and oh, please write us a review.